Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast for another episode. Great to have you along for the ride. And if you are a regular, semi-regular, sporadic or occasional listener to In The Shift, then you might know that over the last probably 10 episodes or more, I think we've been talking about embodiment in a series that I've called In The Flesh. And in some respects, talking about how religious and cultural scripts uh, can frame up the body in largely negative terms for us, whether that's religious notions of the badness or evilness or sinfulness of the body, or even just its relative unimportance, or whether they're cultural scripts about what our bodies should be or shouldn't be and how they should or shouldn't perform or function, or the way in which Western uh, individual rationalism has led us to a kind of disembodiment and a priority towards the abstract and intellectual. So all of those scripts are kind of running for us, and that's a bit of a challenge to address, which I wanted to be uh, wrestling with and, and thinking through on this podcast and throughout this series, and about a theology and spirituality that instead perhaps can give us a sense of, of embrace of our own embodiment, and in doing so, help us to actually navigate what it means to be human beings, uh, because we are embodied creatures. Now, as is my tendency, and kind of ironically, I suppose, for a series on embodiment, I've approached this conversation in, in quite abstract theological terms. You know, I'm a thinker who, who in some ways is, is trying to find his way back into his body. And uh, so as we draw to a close in this particular series, I thought it might be helpful to ground the conversation in a different kind of way. So talking to someone who works with bodies day in and day out and has also done a bunch of self-work on her own embodied journey as well. So I thought that might be a good idea. So in this episode, I'm talking with my good friend Sherry Inoue, who is a massage therapist, uh, but not only talking about her work as a clinician with bodies, but also about her own experience of life as a Japanese-Canadian person now living in New Zealand. Uh, and then we go on to talk about pain, about our relationships with our bodies, and about maybe how we can come to terms with the uniqueness and, and even amazingness. Uh, that's a technical a theological term for the bodies that we inhabit. Now, before we just get into that conversation, an interesting thing has kind of happened to me, which I was only partially aware of during our chat, and then I became increasingly aware of in the days following. And especially as I guess I listened back to a number of times to our conversation as, as I was putting this episode together. Now, you might have picked up throughout the series that, and I'm sure you have, that both because of certain unhelpful religious ideas that I've uh, held, and also because of a complicated sense of self, of body image, of challenges with my relationship to food, to the length of my limbs, all sorts of other factors. Um, and for all my theological reflection about the goodness of bodies, I've actually I've been shaped by primarily negative views of my own body for much of my life. And although I can love the idea of embodiedness as a theologian, and I've really enjoyed exploring that, I guess I've realised uh, in recent times and even more acutely this week that genuinely coming to appreciate, admire and even love my own body is much, much harder than loving the idea of embodiedness for other people. Anyway, in the days since this conversation with Sherry, I have sensed this growing appreciation for my own body. And perhaps some of the reasons for that will become clearer as you listen through our conversation. But I guess I've become aware of how much I have seen my own body through the lens of all the ways that it was different, all the ways it didn't measure up to or fit in or look right or whatever to whatever notion of a body that I had in my head that had been 
given to me by all of those various scripts that seem to be running all of the time. And so over the last few days even, have been immersed in this internal conversation about actually how much I have to be grateful for in relationship to my body and that my body itself is an extraordinary and amazing thing. And even the things I judge quite harshly are only judged that way because I'm measuring them against some imaginary standard that only exists because that's the script that the powers around us have given us. So I'm kind of in the midst of my own little personal transformation moment and, uh, and so I'm excited, looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. So this is episode 29 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so as I mentioned in the intro, Sherry Inoue is a registered massage therapist from Canada. She's a graduate of a three-year program there that includes comprehensive study of anatomy and physiology, pathology, kinesiology, neuroanatomy, orthopedics, remedial exercise, and patient education. She describes herself as a collaborator of goals, a curator of repose, and a part of a humble alliance working with others for the pain-free, sustainable longevity of the movement life. Now, Sherry grew up in Langley on the west coast of Canada in British Columbia, and she was born to Japanese immigrants. Her parents had moved to Canada from Japan in their early to mid-20s. And so before we got into a discussion more focused on her therapeutic work and then on, on our dialogue around embodiment, I asked her about her own experience of growing up at the intersection of this dual identity as a Japanese-Canadian girl growing up in British Columbia in Canada. Yeah, I think I've always been really aware that the the environment at home was very different to the the world I was trying to belong in so um my whole life I felt like I felt like everybody else but definitely didn't look like everybody else and um there's a story I've told you earlier before but I had a friend um who was part of the basketball team and she would comment like oh my gosh your hands and your feet they're so miniature and I'd look at them and think, oh my gosh, they are miniature. Not relative to who I was, but relative to everybody else. And if I looked around, um, everybody was Caucasian. So I did feel like I didn't belong, you know, and, and I would only catch a glimpse of the fact that I was Japanese, like in a reflection um, in glass or something like that. And, and it'd be a real shock, actually, that I was differently shaped or and definitely different size to everybody else. So I did things like, I wore shoes that were two sizes too big or um, just to kind of feel like I was fitting in. And we um, had to go to Japanese language school on Wednesdays after school. I did judo twice a week for eight years and I hid that off my friends. Um, It was difficult enough sort of explaining all the other things that were different about me, Um, all my extracurricular activities being different as well was just extra. So yeah, there was a real kind of um, trying to belong to two different worlds um, my whole life. And when I was 19, I eventually um, got a ch- I got a chance to live in Japan. And I thought, oh, this is the opportunity I've always wanted of sort of answering the question, well, which is it? You know, am I more Canadian or am I more Japanese? And by the end of that year, 
in Japan, I, I sort of felt like this is a season I spent looking like everybody else but feeling um, totally different, which is in contrast or reverse to the life I've had up until the po- that point where I looked very different from everybody else but felt like everybody else. So, um, yeah, I came home having felt like what matters actually is who you are on the inside and I'm Canadian on the inside. And so I tried to settle back into sort of suburban um, Western white life um, and found it really difficult. And um, it wasn't until I came to New Zealand, fast forward quite um, almost a decade, um, and I landed on a Tuesday and on Thursday I went up One Tree Hill and I must have written a pamphlet or some kind of tourism guide about how from, from on top of One Tree Hill, the west and the east of the country would meet. And I remember thinking, oh, that's hilarious. One, because in Canada it's impossible. It's such a big landmass. But two, because I've been waiting for that kind of line or that statement to be true about my life, sort of reconciling what I looked like, the body I had, and the person I felt like I was sort of meeting. Inhabiting this reality as Japanese-Canadian, hiding judo from your school friends, um, sometimes forgetting that you're Japanese until you see a reflection of yourself because you feel the same as everyone else, but then having these moments where you realise you're not the same as everyone else. Um, Do you think this had an impact on your sense of place in the world? Um, Your sense of how you belonged or or didn't? Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. I think unconsciously and consciously it drove this um, sort of quest to force myself to fit in. And so I think I developed a kind of exterior person and I worked really hard on that exterior person and that exterior person was was white basically (laughs) so I I learned the ways I think of the people um by forgetting or ignoring or denying the the realities of me that were Japanese and my mom and I had often had a few well we my mom and I had some conflicts around she would pack me these Japanese lunches and I would throw them away without eating them which she eventually confronted me about and said are you not eating your lunches and I thought well why can't you just make me a normal lunch like everybody else you know Mm. ham sandwich and yeah so I think I was definitely driving the sort of rift um, and I had sort of chosen sides. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's not an, there was a lot that I had to heal from, I think, from that, from doing that. But it served me at the time so that I could feel a part of, yeah, the place I was, I guess. Mm. At some point then along this journey, you bump into Christianity. Yes. Having not necessarily grown up in a, uh, particularly religious household, I don't think. Um, Or you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, When you kind of, when when was it that you encountered this 
this Christian experience, whatever that might be? Um, and how did that kind of then intersect with some of these other realities that you're already navigating? So my father's, um, he's a pretty explicit atheist. And the, which is interesting because Japanese culture is kind of inherently spiritual. So my parents have brought us up with lots of um, awareness around spirit and without knowing, I think, or without intending to. Um, but Christianity was this thing that, um, that white people did. And I think when I first met, I, it's actually one particular family. Um, I worked with a guy called Nathan and he, his family was, they went to a Dutch reform church and they were, they got along so well and his sister would bring him lunches and the entire family would visit him at work. And I just thought, what is this incredibly functional, beautiful family unit? And they eventually invited me um, along to dinners and kind of, yeah, it took me in a bit. And I do remember them hosting like a dinner and then a, have I told you about this? Um, no. <laughs> they would watch this video series, which in the end turned out to be um, what is it called? Nikki Gumbel's video series. Right, which is a kind of a how to introduce someone to Christianity. <laughs> yes. In really accessible, conversational ways. Something like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's okay. right. Um, mm -hmm. And um, Nathan's mum would cook this. They meat. were evangelizing you is what they were doing. Yes, right, they were. Okay, yeah. Because it eventually... I, in reflection, it was like his entire family, I think the pastor's daughter and her boyfriend, and then me at this dinner. And Oh, you were being set up for sure. <laughs> but it, would, it definitely didn't feel like it. It just sure. felt, yeah. it was so nice. And I think I was so unaware, I think. Um, and eventually I caught on that these messages, I think... Um, were actually relevant to my life. And it wasn't um, until w much later, I think, um, that I I got interested, I think, in what they were actually talking about, not just the yummy food that Nathan's mom made. <laughs> and I went with them to their, to their church, yeah. And I think it took me so long to understand um, what they were doing there because I had been taught <laughs> to think of life so objectively, so logically. Um, but it was, yeah, it was less of a, um, I didn't have a conversion experience or anything mm. there. But fast forward after some time, all the young people went to these um, evangelical churches, you know, I think how old was I at the time? 16. And so I decided to, hang less with Nathan's family and go to these churches where, um, now that was a different story. Yeah. They would have, um, different sort of teachings for women and men. They would have different te teachings for different age groups and, but their life seemed very exciting and very happy and, very functional. All the families would come together and they all looked very happy and they were well-dressed. So I think I wanted to be a part of that. And um, I just learned, oh, actually being Christian is just being more white, <laughs> which I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But You're allowed to say that. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, just sort of participating in very Western views of how to be feminine, how to interact with people and how to shun or sort of demonize some of the Eastern um, ideas of life. And I, I think I was already on that path of sort of denying myself kind of my heritage. So it felt it sort of fit in a kind of sad way. And so I did that for a few years and really, I think, really lost myself. And I, I'm a person who asks lots of questions. So I did come up with lots of questions about those things. Um, but it was always sort of met with really simple kind of binary answers. And I just had to I just had to choose to believe it or do it or behave a certain way. It's very simple, but yeah, if you're not a simple person, well, I don't think anyone's a simple person. Mm. Um, but if you have, yeah, sort of different things in your life, which make you, or you're made up of different, yeah, cultures or intersections, it's a, it's a pretty narrow path, yeah. So in that sense then, even, even I'm thinking about Christianity as this <laughs> how, exercise in how to be more white, um, and then the layer of the particular attitudes towards gender as well and, and women within that kind of space. Um, do you see that experience as, in some sense, as further complicating your own sense of identity or, or who you were? And like, and even in talking about losing yourself in that process, were you kind of aware that that's what was happening or were you, or is that something you only see now looking back at that experience? Oh, I think... I think maybe I wasn't aware. Um, some of the questions came out of feeling like, is it okay that I'm throwing that away? And is this, I'm just sort of clarifying, is this what you're asking of me? And when the answer came back, yes, definitely, of course. Then, yeah, perhaps I, d- I didn't question the authority of that. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until I decided that I was going to school to be a massage therapist um, and learning more about the body that I realized, yeah, how dishonored, I think, that those ideas, well, how dishonoring those ideas are. Mm. So having described um, a number of different reasons why perhaps you felt or experienced a sense of disembodiment in your kind of early stages of life, right through into your 20s, how did, how and why did you then begin to recognize that and then put the pieces together in a different kind of way towards health and towards the kind of ways that you think about yourself and you think about embodiment more generally now? So I did become very sick physically and sort of had ongoing issues with... Um, yeah, and, and not anything too obvious, things like not being able to eat whatever I liked and always having a sore tummy and all these kinds of sort of low-grade issues and then having my sleep affected and all these really physical kind of expressions of distress, um, of things in the background not working anymore and and asking questions about those things, engaging doctors who just dismissed it or medicated it. Um, it wasn't until I think I started talking to someone about identity and 
who I had sort of become based on those experiences and perhaps how different that person was to who I was made to be and who I wanted to be and teasing out all of those things to make some space for the, for, yeah, perhaps the me that was always there but never had a chance to express herself. Um, it wasn't until that time that I sort of began that journey of re-embodying this Japanese-Canadian, smaller than most, with a big attitude body um, in a way that I could be proud of and enjoy. So that was like a 10, 15 year journey and one I'm still on. But these days with having made sense, I think of who, who I want to be. Yeah. And how, when I am myself and I'm received by others um, for the gift that that is, I think I just feel so much freer, I think. So yeah, that process was a healing process. It was a um, sort of shedding um, other people's expectations and also ones I created for myself um, and coming, I guess coming out of that, yeah, that allows me to treat others in that way, both as a clinician and also as a friend or um, partner. And so um, you mentioned before that even in starting to do some of your study, you began to notice perhaps some of the ways in which what I think you mentioned dishonouring of some aspects of who you are. So is that something that's big, that you notice the kind of intersection of, of that kind of history of your experience and then your therapeutic work, which is related to bodies, right? Um, how do you, do you do you see there being some kind of intersection of those of that kind of history that you have with the work then that you do? How does do you think they inform each other or, or one informs the other in some way? I suppose with um, probably any kind of therapy, but with massage therapy, um, people in, come with something painful or something that's not working. And I guess you're tasked with helping them figure out what that might be or guiding them in that journey. And so... What I didn't expect was that my job day in and day out would be to listen to people's pain and be there to help work it out. And that was something that I needed in my life. And a lot of my own healing, I think, came from doing that work. Mm. So there's a lot of invisible pain. A lot of people think that when you're injured or your tissues are damaged, that's when you have pain. But thanks to technology and lots of great advancements in imaging, we see that something can be damaged and totally not painful. There's um, a number like 40 odd percent of all labral tears are asymptomatic. So they don't, they don't express any kind of painful um, symptoms. So just sort of, yeah, realizing that I was in a kind of work that 
that made space for invisible pain. I think that really helped me to feel like maybe some of the pain I had was also legitimate. And yeah, it sort of opened a whole door for myself, I think. And, mm. and all, yeah, unintentional for myself, yeah. And thinking about your work in relation to pain, then what, what, what do you notice about pain? Or I mean, what is it? What is pain? Yeah. Oh, um, wow. That can be answered in so many different ways. Okay. Um, some of which I'm not qualified to answer, but it's, pain is so interesting because it's an interpretation. Right. You know? Yeah. Your body has um, so much capacity to kind of gather the data about what you're feeling. And based on that information, your brain makes a guess about what it could be, if it's dangerous or if you've had it before and what it means. And so... Um, it's not so simple as to say that it's um, a physical experience only. Um, it's like incredibly whole person experience pain. And one of the things that I think I can say after practicing for 10 years is that it's often a body sort of asking for the person who has that body to respond it's a real um, expression of like, hey, <laughs> I'm here. Do you notice that? I get the sense that, well, I know for me, pain I tend to see as, or have tended to see in my life. Um, probably coming to see you has changed my relationship with the way I think about this a bit. Um, but I would have seen pain primarily as a bad thing Mm. Right, pain is the thing I want to eliminate. I want to get rid of the pain. That's why I would come to see someone like you, right? Make the pain go away. Is that an attitude you kind of encounter a lot in people when they come to see you? Do they just want you to like take away their pain? Yes, yeah, definitely. I think there's a there's a huge association of of um, with pain being bad because it's uncomfortable. It mm. feels terrible. So we just want it to go away rather than um, engage it or understand it and listen to it. And I wonder sometimes if it's because we don't have the space or the time to do that. So it becomes an inconvenience to our lives. And that's why we see it as bad. Or if it's just because it's an awful physical experience and um, we shouldn't be ex um, exposed or um, to that. Yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of people's attitudes are, yeah, can you just make it go away? Um, the other thing is that I think I'm not entirely sure if it's the sort of way we've engaged the biomedical system or the way the biomedical system is designed, but um, people with lots of um, letters behind their name are the experts on your body. And so when people come expecting you to, to do something about their pain, the, the whole system kind of works like that, I guess, is to disempower your ability to understand it or it doesn't encourage you to understand it. It just, um, there are people there to understand it for you. Um, and that's sort of further disembodies people that approach. So when, when patients come with sore shoulders or sore hips or whatever it is, um, I sort of treat that time 
as an opportunity to ask the question, sort of get interested in what what it is that bodies are saying rather than getting busy too quickly on fixing it or making it go away. Because you kind of want to leave the fixing or the um, diagnosis or the answers to the very end after you've spent a good amount of time listening to what what the problem actually is. And we don't we don't give people, well, we don't give ourselves that time and lots of um, clinicians also don't give that time. So you'll know if you've been to a sports doctor or a surgeon, they're very quick appointments. Um, mm. So when you're going to see them for an answer or to be handed a menu of what, what kinds of things they can do to fix it, um, that doesn't require very much time. So that suits sort of the system of not giving us ourselves time. Yeah. Now, I just wanted to mention at this point that I first met Sherry actually at the gym that I was going to, and uh, and I was really struggling with knee pain from some real damage that I had done to myself for a variety of reasons. And since that time and meeting her there, as well as becoming really good friends, I've, I've been to see her a bunch of times for treatment. And one of the things I, be, I was interested in asking her was, I'm aware that, that as I go into a space like that to receive that kind of treatment, I carry with me all of these complicated, sometimes quite negative attitudes, judgments and experiences about my own body, whether that's related to pain that I'm in, whether it's related to something that I wish my body was able to do that it's not, or whether it's related to loads uh, of uh, ideas around why my body isn't the way that I think it should be, why it doesn't measure up to what it should look like, I don't, whatever kind of complicated sense of um, relationship to my own body and my body image that I, that I kind of carry with me, that I carry that into the room with me. And, and yet she's someone who works with other people's bodies day in and day out. And so my sense, even in that space, is that perhaps sometimes if there are other people like me, she's working with people where she's much more comfortable with their bodies than they are with their own bodies. And is that something she's kind of aware of? Is that something she's observed and noticed? And does she have any reflections on that? Yeah, I, I wonder if it's a luxury that I have when um, approaching people's bodies of sort of, I don't need it to uh, run the race this weekend or... Um, be quiet while I'm trying to work really hard at a project I've got that's due whenever. Um, so I get to ask questions that are more interested in what the body is saying or feeling and um, without needing it to achieve an outcome. So it's kind of an, uh, I guess I'm more, oh, well, not that I'm more, but I feel like I get to be open to what is being said rather than needing it to perform in a certain way. So one of the things that I've been taught to do, which I like to do with most patients, is before they tell me what is going on, we sort of have a look at the architecture. Where is everything sort of sitting one atop the other, the big pieces of the body? And when we do that, I can see, okay, this hip has wandered this way or this person's rotated and then they have a counter-rotation up above it. And um, that's something that doesn't come with um, expectations of what it should be or shouldn't be or um, how it's connected to pain or not connected to whatever the, the problem they have. Um, but it's sort of, well, we like to say an, an unbiased sort of opinion of where the pieces are. Um, 
And so this, it, it's so much more interesting than saying, oh, it's not working or, yeah. So I, I think people are arrive because they're interested in their bodies and what it's doing or not doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying I'm more interested in people's bodies than they are, but perhaps I am, it feels like my job to engage that person in their bodies without too many expectations um, about what it should do and rather just hear what it is feeling comfortable doing. Um, and all, um, all movement is a solution. So when people say it doesn't move well, well, it's more that maybe something is stuck or um, it, it's finding difficult or painful um, and so it constructs or manufactures a way to get around that for you, which is very clever and normal. Mm. So compensations are uh, very welcome. A, a well-compensated body is a well-functioning one. Um, and so we just listen to say, oh, well, well that's odd um, or isn't working for you. So why don't we find the cause of that and address that? I don't know if you would comment on this or not. But um, do you think is it? Do you think maybe because I guess we require so much of our own bodies, but also because of our own histories, our own stories, we can develop quite complicated views towards our own embodiment. Some people complicated because they absolutely love their bodies and think they're the best thing they've ever seen, um, <laughs> and. And then for many people, quite negative judgments about their bodies, either about the way they move or the way they feel or the way they look or whether they fit in or don't fit in or belong or don't belong. Are there different ways, do you think, of being able to navigate that journey than just simply leaning into our own negative self-judgments? Yeah, I wonder if, for me, I spent so much of my life resenting the kind of body I had because it was different to other people. Um, So the starting point I have about my body is that it's different. And I wonder if everyone's starting point is that, Mm. but we have different degrees of believing that it should be the same as someone else's body. Right. And that has an effect on how much of it we want to fix or don't like. Mm. Um, If the starting point is that your body is different from someone else's body and you can't force it or compare it or force it to fit into their idea or compare it to their idea, then it sort of carves out a path for you where you get to ask, well, what is this body and who is this person who embodies it and um, and how do those things, how can those things play out for, for my own wellness and for the good of the world? If we can approach our bodies like that, I think there's more, um, there's more room for enjoying our bodies and it will narrow down the times that will feel like it's failing us. 
it's um I think becomes an invitation to to quite a liberating way of seeing one's own body and and I kind of reflect on it for, for myself and think part of the challenge with it is that the is you're kind of naming a reality there which is this sense of difference that every person has in relation to their body um, and yet we kind of I guess the dominant narratives that we get fed whether that was through um, particular religious constructs but also I think about the probably what's more profound for many people is the the kind of narratives that are sold to us all the time um, which obviously contribute to people's various um, body image issues and all all that kind of stuff which kind of says this is this is what your body should be, should look like, should perform like. Um, you know, I think about the fact that, so, um, you know, my legs are short and my torso is long. So we were out trying to buy a car the other day. And um, and I guess on the podcast, given that this is an audio experience, people don't know that in real life, I'm a relatively short person. Short compared to what? I don't know. I guess it depends, right? Yeah. Short compared to whatever I think uh, the average or the norm is, but the norm varies depending on where you are. Um, so I'm, you know, like five foot seven. And I sat down in this car next to the car salesman who sat down in the passenger seat and we're about to take it for a test drive. And my head nearly touches the ceiling because my torso is really long. And he's like, oh, you're a really tall guy. I didn't notice. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Uh, you might remember we were just standing up over there before and you were much taller than me. But in the car, I was much taller than him. But this is this thing that I become, from from a young age, was super aware of, you know, oh, I've got these kind of really short legs on the bottom of this long torso. And then, and we, you know, whenever I had kind of growth spurts in teenage life, my body just grew in different proportions than other people's did and and. And that kind of difference, that sense of feeling different, is quite acute. Mm. Um, but the comparison is to some kind of imaginary normal that we're kind of sold to some degree. It seems to me the imaginary normal isn't a real thing. It's not a thing. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm encouraged by as I hear you talking about actually being able to appreciate starting from a point of unique embodiment that doesn't have to be something other than what it is um, I don't know that becomes an invitation to a different way of seeing oneself I think it's the job of our parents and our families and our friends and our um, communities to welcome that uniqueness out mm. of each person but for a, I'm sure a many number of reasons. I don't know if it's easier or if it just serves a different purpose to expect it to fit in. Yeah. And those are the things that we have to unwind when we, I guess, encounter pain in our adult bodies. Mm. It's quite interesting having a nine-month-old baby in the house because I have been... One of the things I notice is how much we celebrate when Rufus learns to do something. But we certainly, like when, you know, he taught himself to clap a couple of weeks, a week or two ago. Um, and we're all, you know, celebrating and, oh, isn't he so clever and isn't it amazing? And, and kind of watching how amazing is it, it is as he starts to figure out how to, like, 
use his body and his, his neural pathways and his sense of how he can make his arms move when he wants them to move. And, you know, now he's crawling and standing and trying to figure out how he can um, manoeuvre himself into awkward situations that he can't get out of. Um, but at that age, we really celebrate what it is we're able to see the body doing. But we seem to lose that, don't we? Um, <laughs> and yet it's no less remarkable for us as grown adults um, than it is watching it unfold in a little baby who's doing some of that stuff for the first time. And perhaps it's only when we aren't able to do something that we realise how remarkable it was that we could do it at all. Mm. Um, and, I, and I wonder you know, whether that kind of posture towards ourselves of actually being able to celebrate how remarkable our bodies and our cells are. Um, perhaps that becomes a another kind of positive invitation. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I feel like every person that ever helps, um, yeah, you navigate your adult body life and body life <laughs> should make you feel that way, definitely. Right. Yeah. Okay, so that's about where our conversation wrapped up. And as I said at the beginning, I've found reflecting on this particular chat to be really important for me personally. And so I hope that there's something in it for you too. Thanks so much to Sherry for agreeing to come on In The Shift this week. Thanks to Rhys Michel for his sound skills as always. And of course, you can support In The Shift by becoming a patron, going to patreon.com slash in the shift. And if you want to, you can get in touch via social media or by going to intheshift.com. We'll see you next time.